Chapter Fifteen of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen The Charm of the Irrawaddy. I have so far kept to the general aspect of the river and its villages, but there were many details which are too interesting to pass over cursorily. The first thing that attracted my attention after leaving Sagaing was the junction of the Chindwin with the Irrawaddy. The mouths of the two rivers are so wide, and the banks so flat, that they do not form any very striking scene, but yet the views were fine, seen in full sunlight. The sand was a bright yellow, and the water a lovely blue, while the distant ranges of low heights took on a peculiar pinkish tinge that I soon grew to recognize. Popa, the only outstanding hill in this part, is of volcanic origin, and rises to nearly five thousand feet, sheer from a level plain. He is a conspicuous object all along the river for many miles, and, owing to the curves of the channel, he appears to be first on one side and then on the other. Pakoku was one of the earliest places where I went ashore, braving the obstacles that lay in the way. I passed through two flats, one beyond the other, of which the shiny iron floors were made more slippery by the occupation of countless bullocks. Coolies were rushing hither and thither with loads, and it was by no means easy to get a clear moment to negotiate the long planks of the gangways that swung alarmingly. I climbed up the dry-baked mud of the shore, which Chinnaswamy assured me was burning hot to his feet and I watched the busy workers swarming up and down into the entrance of the flat, like ants into a hole. A brilliant patch of color I thought was a carpet attracted my attention from afar. It turned out to be a mass of red chilies spread in the sun to dry. Very soon after leaving Pakoku, we came to Nyang'u, which is, so to speak, the river port of the mighty and famous Pagan, pronounced Pagan. Bitterly, to my disappointment, we did not stay here for the night, so I had no chance of visiting the famous temples of Pagan, of which Sir G. J. Scott says, quote, Nothing like the Pagan temples is to be found anywhere else. They should be seen by every visitor to Burma. End quote. There are many pagodas also, but the chief ruins are those of temples, which one does not meet with elsewhere in Burma. That Pagan was once a place of great importance may be judged from the fact that the ruins extend for eight miles along the shore. Nyang'u is in itself interesting, but it pales before its fascinating neighbor. It is celebrated for its lacquer work, but I did not see any because it seems the villagers only bring out their wares for display when the mailboat comes down, and did not think the cargo boat important enough to bother about. We were here for nearly an hour, and I wandered through the village and got rather good photos. Then we left the ghat and went slowly over to the opposite shore. The river was so wide here that I looked across a stretch of pure, smooth, lavender-colored water, extending for over a mile, edged by a strip of drab sand and a long range of pagodas of varying heights and shapes, presenting somewhat the aspect of a forest of fir trees. The chief outstanding objects were a tall golden spire, and the white sides of the temple called Gauda Palin, 
which, though not large, is conspicuous, being near the water's edge. The chief of all the temples is the Ananda, of which I got a glimpse in outline against the sky. Days and even weeks might be spent by the various novice, happily amid these magnificent ruins. I put Pagan aside in the nook of regrets, which holds also the ruby mines, the Mengon Bell, the road to China, and a few other trifles. The same night we passed on to Yenangyong, and tied up there. This is the place of the famous petroleum wells which have been worked for many years. Before we arrived I was puzzled to understand the meaning of the tall, thin-legged erections like miniature Eiffel Towers, or the Martians of Wells' famous book, which bestrode every ridge and boss of hill. It was the most absolutely dreamlike shore I had yet seen. The cliff banks rose sharply just like the canvas walls at Earl's Court seeming to have height without thickness, and were bent in innumerable wrinkles and folds. They were of the same dull drab color as the curtailed shore, and a few scrubby bushes, stunted and black in the evening light, were scattered about thinly. To anchor here instead of Nyang U was a sad blow, but trade calls for transport, and much cargo was awaiting removal. I went down that evening and walked about on the lower deck to see the cargo. It looked like a hospital ward, for the passengers aft were all sleeping on the ground in rows amid their goods and chattels. It puzzled me how they could sleep at all, for it was tempestuously noisy, but many pways doubtless formed the basis of their training. The harder a native works, the more he shouts, and as there were many great iron pipes and boilers to be got on board, the air was hideous with yells. The climax was reached with the advent of one enormous boiler, when the din rose to a maddening pitch. The only thing I could compare it with was a pack of hounds in full cry. We started early next morning, but had hardly left when we ran heavily on to a sandbank and stuck there. This was our first mishap of such a kind, and as we got off in four hours, we were lucky, for a previous steamer had just been on that same bank for about thirteen. The procedure is interesting. After sounding all round to find out on which side the deep water lies, the anchor is taken out in a boat and dropped some way off, and the steamer steams up to it. If it drags, you wait and smoke a cheroot, I quote the captain, for the silt coming down will soon root it there beyond the possibility of its being pulled up. The Lascars in their blue trousers, with long white tunics down to the knee, their bright scarlet belts and little flat round forage caps, always reminded me of men in a comic opera, for they did a great deal of scrambling and shouting and getting in each other's way, but never were they so comma-opera-ish as on this occasion. The huge anchor was balanced on one side of the boat, ready to be let go and the natives instinctively and without thought gathered on the opposite side to counterbalance it. Result? The anchor went over certainly, and so did the men as the boat tilted up with the relief of weight. It was the neatest thing I ever saw. Of course they could all swim and scramble back immediately, and the roars of delight with which their comrades on board greeted the exploit were worth hearing. Up the river, where the natives of India have not penetrated, Nearly all the coolie work is done by Burmans. 
one sees everywhere the tattooed breeches which proclaim their race very well proportioned specimens the men are and though medium size they are so well formed and active that it is a pleasure to watch them almost invariably their first thought after working till the perspiration pours from them is to go into the water to wash girls quite young things also carry sacks energetically and even haul ropes though the captain said that was something new the method by which the incoming cargo is checked is by tallies or little sticks one of which is handed to each coolie who goes with the sack across the gangway and the overseer on board collects the tallies for the total number the workers are not paid individually but just hired together and as they come and go pretty evenly this is a fair method at very many places a sky-blue or black-clad chinaman invariably with an umbrella came down in charge of cargo to put abroad he was almost always owner or manager not workman between the natives of india who are getting all the rough work and shoving up from below and the chinaman seizing business opportunities and making his pile above the burman will eventually find himself a bit squeezed but at present he is quite happy and does not at all object to other people doing his work at a place below yanang yang a mere gat or landing with no huts at all i went on shore for a walk the country realized my idea of south africa the low ridges were simply speckled all over with round stones laid so thickly that nothing could have been planted between them thorn bushes wait a bit by nature if not by name grew here and there the lascars had all run to a high hedge and were picking and eating something eagerly the boy told me these were wild plums a little round dull fruit the size of a large cherry with a good deal more stone and skin than anything else they are yellowish green when ripe and after being gathered soon turn a brilliant red which is pretty to look at but they are then rotten to a european taste though they are collected in hundreds for making jam the land as far as one could see was of the same utterly dry monotonous type with scrub sparsely grown a stony surface broken up by deep nullahs or dry watercourses with steep sides whichever direction i went in i was soon brought up by one of these and stopped the boy meantime got into difficulties with the thorny ground which did not suit his bare feet at all i should have thought from long use his soles would have been like leather but he was very sensitive and even on grass where a certain kind of thorn is found i used to look round and see him painfully dancing like a cat on hot bricks when we drew up at zigan a little further down i expected something worth seeing for several of the high ornamental roofs of pungyi chung's peered above a very picturesque grove of palms carpets of the red plums were spread out everywhere and the place looked more bowered and green and less hopelessly dusty than most after some difficulties with dogs and cactus thorns and hedges and palisades we got near the pung yi chungs and found a little group of boys playing together chinaswami told me they were orphans brought up at the chong he acted schoolmaster and drilled them into a group while i took a photo of them and then i gave them backsheesh two annas to divide among them it seemed to me hardly enough for about twelve children but i was told by plenty in bazaar
it is a great pleasure here to see the complete confidence and friendliness among the children. I dare not say that bullying is unknown, but it certainly seemed to me it was so. If I gave the biggest boy in a group any money to divide, the little ones always seemed absolutely confident of getting their share. There was no complaining or grabbing or quarreling. The shore, as usual, was alive with people, but their manners were innately good. They were, of course, extremely curious, and would, I have no doubt, have liked to examine the texture of my clothes, but they never jostled me or stared while I was looking. The motley crowd, all dressed in dingy yellow or reds, were seated squatting like great birds in rows, and if I stood for a minute looking seawards and then turned, I would find whole groups of twenty or more removed several yards nearer, but not looking at me at all, oh no! admiring the landscape or seascape just as i was doing myself another turn away for a few seconds would find them all closer up still so close i could have touched them with my hand but still admiring the scenery one evening we arrived at quite a large place which i was told was called silimio the shore was most animated and several glittering pagodas arose from the toddy palms behind there were large Burmese boats tied up by the shore, and their delicious red wood toned to the color of a violin case, reflected in the ripples of the silver-blue water. Rows of bullock carts and heaps of merchandise for transport were on the shore. It is a comfort to see how well-treated Burman bullocks invariably are. I noted this at the time, but remembered it especially after seeing the poor thin creatures in Ceylon, hideously scarred by branding all over their bodies. I strolled off to look at what there was to be seen, followed by the boy and a friend he had picked up somewhere, a native of India, not a Burman. I asked if there were a deputy commissioner here, and was told, No missy, only muk, no gentlemen's. The chief industry of the village seemed to be the making of pillows, stools, and mattresses, of which there were piles before many of the houses. We went through the village to a newly gilt pagoda of great size, with a snowy white base. This did not interest me so much as a perfect wilderness of falling and decayed ones behind it. These had an air of melancholy. Little paths led about among high-growing weeds and tumbled, rotting red brick. A tall flower, like a mauve and white phlox, grew abundantly at every corner, and dark wooden chungs, with the carving falling to bits, stood here and there. I heard a drone of voices in one of these, and made my way toward it, as I knew it meant school was going on, and I wished to see little scholars at work. It was a poor, small chung, but when I climbed up the wooden steps I came on an interesting scene. Three little pupils were lying on their stomachs, with long slabs of black steatite, or slate, in front of them. On these they were writing with sharp styles, carrying on a monotonous drone the while. The Pung Yi, who was an old man in heavy horn-rimmed spectacles, looked most indignant at the sudden interruption, and the pupils incontinently fled such an apparition as a tall lady in a white topee and European clothes. My self-constituted guide evidently explained to the Pung Yi that I was a good sort, because after a few minutes' conversation his grim expression relaxed, and when I called out to the children, Pice! Pice! they hastened back and began vehemently reciting their lessons again, with twice the energy they had before displayed. 
I gave them the pice, which they grabbed eagerly, and we passed on. Afterwards, when I asked what else there was interesting to see, I was taken to a compound where a woman was making a strip of cotton stuff for a lungi. It was a pattern of black and magenta check, and she told us she could, by working hard, do a lungi a day. But that meant going at it from morning till night. I could well believe it, for she had to count twenty-five threads of one color before beginning the next, and every single thread of the warp had to be tied separately before she began. She worked a machine with her feet and threw the shuttle cross by hand. For a complete lungi she received a rupee, out of which, of course, the cost of the thread had to come. I wanted to buy some Burmese shoes, so we passed to the bazaar, a very poor place, only a collection of dirty sheds. The shoes were all much too small, but I bought one pair of emerald green velvet, and had the whole population of the village round me while I did it. I had wandered about enough, and it was time to go abroad, so I asked the boy if I should give bakshish to the guide, who spoke no English, so could not understand. He really had helped us, and evidently knew his way about, but the boy said no, he was a passenger, and only came for pleasure. I never found the people a bit grasping. At one place further down the river, called Efanzig, we stopped for about two or three hours, and I had great fun with the children. I stayed on board, and the saloon deck was some distance, say, about eighty yards from the shore. In this space many small children were bathing and swimming with delightful abandon. Boys and girls together, flinging themselves along the water with a kind of gliding motion, as I have seen sea-lions do. On the table of the saloon lay dessert, ready for dinner, among which were half a dozen small oranges, or limes as they are called here. So I threw one into the water. After it all the young ones went instantly. The orange floated, bobbing up and down, and at the end of a wild race a little girl of about ten, who swam splendidly, grabbed it just before a boy about her own age reached it too. She swam back in triumph, throwing back her long hair and shouting. They then all danced up and down on the shore, showing in all their gestures they wanted more. So I threw one after another, and was rewarded by seeing fine races. The little girl was far the best swimmer, and secured two for herself. When the oranges were exhausted, I asked the butler for more, saying I would pay for them. But at first he refused, protesting they were for gentlemen, and at last, as I persisted, swore solemnly he had no more. I knew this was a lie, and sent the boy to tell him so, but the boy could not get them out of him. He only managed to bring me one or two rotten ones, and when I expostulated, saying they were not good enough, he told me, "'Little boys eat this, Missy. Say very good.' Then I remembered I had two or three toys from the Arakan Pagoda, gaudy tigers and painted monkeys, in my trunk, and fetched them. When I held up the first tiger, all red and yellow paint, with his legs going on strings, there was a yell of excitement that rent the air, and all the children were in the water ere ever it touched the surface. I merely dropped it instead of throwing, so it was a long swim. But the small boy who won swam back with one hand, holding it up over his head with the other, so as not to get it wet. Then there was a monkey, and another tiger, and when the frantic excitement was discerned, mothers came running to see what it was all about, and the treasures were displayed with much gesticulation. 
At length, seeing no more were forthcoming, a procession was formed, and the biggest boy, holding the largest tiger high aloft, solemnly marched up to the village, followed by all the others, the rear brought up by the smallest, who had the purple monkey. Never did cheap toys furnish forth such a royal and to-be-remembered afternoon's entertainment. One or two of the oranges had been green and did not float, and a tiny fat girl spent hours feeling about with her feet in the mud, where they had fallen, to recover them. I had nothing more to give the children but some French prunes, so I went through the flat and down to them with a handful, and was instantly surrounded, but most of them refused to eat them, not knowing what they were. They took them and held them in their hands, but did not even nibble them in spite of all my pantomime, and one mother shook her head and took them from her offspring. I went back and inquired the Burmese word for plums, and brought back an interpreter, an overseer who was working cargo, but the prunes had disappeared. He inquired of a little girl who had annexed several and found that they had all gone the right way. Once begun they had quickly vanished. I longed for some of the native sweets, which the children would have understood. A great charm about the little ones was their fearlessness. At one place I saw a drove of bullocks rush down like an avalanche, and after them a very small boy, sitting barebacked on a particularly fine little pony. The child came down at headlong speed, and simply flung himself off into the sand, letting the pony go and chivying the bullocks into the water with the stick, then danced like a mad thing along the shore, so full of wild spirits he could not contain himself. The children never wore any headdress, even under the most grilling sun, and it is a marvel how they escape sunstroke. The cargo we took in at the various places was very mixed, let-pet, or pickled tea, apparently in large quantity, sacks and sacks of the pith the people use in the cigars mixed with tobacco. It is used for making pith helmets, sacks of dried palm leaves, kutch, peas and beans, cotton, and when we arrived at Magway, or rather at the gap three miles from Magway, the whole beach was covered by a mountainous heap of sacks. Some told me there were fourteen thousand. They were all full of monkey nuts, or, as they are called here, ground nuts, the cultivation of which is found to be so profitable that paddy is being given up for them. They are partly used to make oil cake. Of course, it was perfectly impossible that our steamer, even with the assistance of two flats, should take on all these, and when I asked the captain what he would do, he told me that the coolies would go on loading as late as they liked, and that he should get off first thing in the morning, leaving the rest for following steamers. It would be months before the whole could be carried off. Like many other arrangements of nature, there is perversity in this matter of cargo, for in the wet season, when the river is high, and much cargo might be carried without danger of overloading, there is little or nothing to take, whereas when there is little water, and the carrying capacity is limited, there is an unlimited amount of cargo. The captain spoke sadly. The greater part of his salary is derived from his percentage on the cargo. It was at Magway that a slight fire occurred among the sacks, and the coolie girls rushed frantically about, emptying their chatties on to any and every sack they saw, quite regardless of the fact that they were doing a good deal of damage. There was much more smoke than fire, and noise than either, and the little conflagration was soon got under. 
There was a very interesting group of Pung Yi Chung's near here, and I went into the quiet grove around them, and climbing the steps, listened for quite a long time to the chant of the little pupils, of whom there were twenty or thirty. They could all see me standing sun-framed in the dark entrance, but the old Pung Yi, who was the teacher, was hidden behind a column. These little scholars were much too clever to give me away, and beyond a nudge to pass the joke on to one another, they continued their loud recitative with greater animation than before. But as the news spread, and one little face after another stealthily turned toward me, with a broad grin showing white teeth, the Pungi began to suspect some sideshow and stirred. So I retreated. There is an immensely wide road of red dust, a great bund, broad as a river and seamed with bullock-cart tracks, running up to Magway itself, but when I went for a walk that evening I turned away from this, and passing down a high-hedged lane, not unlike an English lane, with the boy at my heels, struck out into by-paths. To go with the boy through a lane full of growing things was a liberal education. He knew every plant in the hedgerow. There were little brilliant scarlet seeds, exactly like ladybirds, lying in a pentagonal pod. Burmans make medicine, he told me. Then a plant with dark shiny green leaves, like ivy. Burmans eat these, missy. He restrained me as I would have gathered a tall flowering plant, attractive to look at. Not touching, missy. Him got black juice, not good. Then we came across whole bushes of wild plums, growing rich and yellow, and his face brightened, for he loved them. I waited while he filled his pockets until, as I told him, he had got quite enough to make himself ill. The bushes were covered with little insidious thorns, bent back like fish-hooks, so picking was by no means pure delight. Thorns were everywhere on nearly all the plants. At last a great black pod attracted my attention. I broke it off and peeled it open, and inside was a little baby loofah sponge, filled with black seeds. Such is the depth of my ignorance. I had always had an idea loofahs grew in the sea like other sponges. We passed by the tall creepers and high cactus, and came out at last by a great loop on to the main road, which was lined with small mango trees. Even here the boy had something to say. He pointed to two of these and told me, one not good, the other good. When I asked how he knew, he explained that a mango tree with much flower never bears good fruit, and one of these was covered with the spiky seeded blossoms. There were many mimosa plants which curled up a touch, and mimosa-like trees which were looking quite withered, having drooped for the night-time. Then we passed the village women carrying up water from the river in chatties, and enjoying gossip. It was funny to note how the one small boy among them asserted his manhood by carrying his chatty on his shoulder like a man, not on the head like a woman. When we left Magwe we came soon after to Minla, where there is the historic fort taken by the English in 1885. The place had an especial interest for me, as a cousin of mine, a mere boy, was the only officer killed at that skirmish. The wall of the fort runs along by the river on a height, and is seamed by great cracks. Bushes and thick grass crown it, growing luxuriantly, and a mass of dark greenery droops over one corner. No one is allowed to go inside now, as it is not safe, and the crumbling walls might fall and bury them. 
There was an open-air market at Minhla, and several pagodas, the central and tallest of which had a golden spire. But the most interesting sight of all was the landing of a marble image of the Buddha, brought by the steamer, the gift of a wealthy Burman to the shrine. The image was swathed in cloths, and laid on its back and dragged across from the steamer by the narrow plank gangway. Men and women coolies alike left their loads of kutch and flew to help in such a work of merit, and there was much shouting and hooing and chattering, while poor Buddha, looking as if he were strangled by the rope round his neck, was slowly drawn across. The glorious morning light made it a brilliant scene. There were many better-class men come down to meet the image, and they were clad in gay pink silk turbans and putsos, among them the owner himself, so that the scene was much brighter than the ordinary everyday one. The Buddha was dragged to a certain height up the cliff-like bank, and no amount of pushing or pulling could stir him higher, so he was set up on end, and the cloths removed, and there he sat, a very dignified and disdainful figure, with the sunlight shining on his smooth, satiny arms, while he was surrounded by an eager and reverential crowd. If I had not been expressly told, I might have thought he was of alabaster, so fine was the grain of the veined marble from which he was hewn. I wanted the owner to sit beside his gift, so that I could include him in a photo, but he was too big a man for that. He waved grandly, with his weather-stained umbrella, to others of his friends, to act proxy for him while the deed was done. Masses of pickled tea, to be used at the ceremony of installation, were also put ashore, and the festival promised to be a gay one. I wished I could have stayed to see it. Below Minhla, the river scenery is distinctively more varied and interesting than above, and the coast is broken and wooded and not so flat. We saw many splendid specimens of rafts a hundred feet in length or more, with men poling them slowly upstream in the baking sun, wearing only the merest rag of clothing, but generally some turban or cloth on their heads. Alangmyo is a place with many mills, some of them sawmills, others for making oil cake from cotton, and the cotton waste, thrown into a brazier, being itself oily, is much used at nights to give a good flaring light. I started off with the boy for a walk, almost as soon as we arrived. The place was well cared for, with street lamps and wide roads, cutting each other at right angles, and appearing less dusty than usual. There were several pagodas scattered about, near which, as usual, the sweet frangipani grew on brown stems, for the leaves come later. The boy secured me some of the flowers, from which a sticky milky juice like that of a dandelion oozes. In one shrine was an immense figure of the Buddha, and when I went in to see it an old man came up to act as guide. He told me long stories about it, none of which, even with the help of the boy's translation, could I understand, but as he had taken some trouble, I gave him a two-anna bit when we went away. He rushed at me so promptly, and gesticulated so wildly, that I thought he would have slain me, for insulting him by so small a tip, so I asked the boy, does he think it not enough? Chinna's solemn face seldom relaxed into a smile, but it did now as he answered, he is praying to God for you, Missy, praying, 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 he bless you, he pray you go to England and come back, praying, praying a great deal. 
so vehement was the old man's joy that i could hardly believe all this was for the sake of twopence he buy candles now went on the boy he burn them here he pray more always pray for you missy even as we passed down the street we saw the old fellow beckoning to the passers-by and displaying his coin between his finger and thumb and pointing wildly to my retreating figure and all for the sake of twopence it was the cheapest purchase i ever made there is a great bund quite good enough for cycling on which runs from prome to alanmio and ends in a creek where there was once a formidable fort we turned on to this on our way back but we had walked far and it was quite dark before we reached the steamer nevertheless we found work going on in full swing girls even quite small ones carrying sacks of cotton by the light of the flaring cotton waste i was told that these girls were not paid like ordinary coolies but so much a sack and thus they worked fast it seemed very hard work for such small things but they laughed and chatted and enjoyed themselves all the time truly these women are wonderful i saw one woman with two full chatties one on top of another come up from the river one day and a baby was seated astride her hip and then alas on the morrow we arrived at prome at four o'clock beneath a blazing sun and i had to say good-bye to the happy days on the boat days which had glided past so serenely that all care seemed to have floated away from me i had to turn and face the train once more and rangoon and the prospect of a real and sad farewell the landing was difficult across long planks resting on ridges of rock and it took six men or so they said to carry my big box over to the station as i watched them progressing slowly i smiled to remember that one woman had carried it on her head quite gaily at sagaing i always left the boy to wrestle with the coolies as to the backsheesh a plan that saved me infinite trouble and when they bothered me i sent them to him and then he told me what he had paid native disciplinarians will say that of course i paid a great deal more that way i might be sure some stuck to his hands well perhaps a small percentage did but so long as the whole was reasonable and i took good care of that i found this plan infinitely the best i sent him to the station with the things while i went to the dak bungalow there to rest and feed as the train for rangoon did not leave till nine thirty it was very hot and i was tired and dirty i wanted a room to wash in on arrival i found quite the most dilapidated and tumble-down shanty i had yet seen in that capacity a mud floor level with the mud outside a square table thereon a screen beyond which the washing up went on walls of badly put-together wood whitewashed roughly like the poorest settler's hut and four outside staircases leading up to the bedrooms above i asked the derwan a huge man black as a boot where i could wash he understood a little english and pointed up one staircase thither i went to find at the top on the narrow veranda a half-caste woman two natives and a white man squatting together on the floor i pushed past to the door which opened on to a dark and noisome room with unmade beds and other signs of occupation i went down in a rage and asked the derwan how he could have been such a fool as to send me there at last he explained humbly those gentlemen not living here only lady other bed in that room for you i think he was surprised to find i did not assent to this ingenious arrangement 
I explained I did not want a bed, luckily, only a place in which to clean up, then afternoon tea and dinner later. He took me thereupon to the other side of the bungalow, and up that staircase into a small shed bathroom, of the kind usual in these places. This opened into a bedroom occupied by a white man, who was lying full length on a deck chair and smoking. It was evidently his dressing-room. The Derwan made a frantic attempt to close the rickety doors between, and failed, so he said to the owner of the room, who had preserved an immovable composure throughout the trying scene, "'Gentlemen, much obliged, not going in there. Lady washing!' and retired. I did manage to wash, certainly, but it was precipitately. My blowing up had done the Derwan good. He hustled about and gave me of his best. The tea was not bad, and the butter was washed. Having ordered dinner, and the boy having returned, I sauntered out to look at the largest and finest pagoda in the place. It certainly is a magnificent building, the only one I saw comparable with the Shui de Gan. But it lacks the growth, the ripeness of years, which so sanctifies that jewel among pagodas. It is too new and cleaned up, and much too gaudy. The entrance is steeper, it runs beneath a succession of piathats of marvellous carved wood, most of it black from having been oiled, but some a rich red. These have zinc roofs, but they do not jar on one, as the high edges of the pinnacles and parapets hide them. This fine ascent leads upwards to a great golden pyramid, surrounded by lesser white pyramids, arising amid a grove of greenery upon which one looks down. The situation is indeed unsurpassable. The pagoda stands on a boss, from which roll away valleys, filled with feathery palms and other tropical vegetation, and the scene impresses one much more with the sense of mystery than does the openness around the Shui de Gan. From the platform the hills beyond the river can be seen, and the glint of the blue water between. There are great numbers of sacred bells, and as the people passing round constantly strike them, there is a sweet, rather melancholy succession of different tones ringing in the air. Many of the surrounding shrines on the platform are of the same wonderful carved work as the entry, but there is a difference among them. Some of them are really good. Others show signs of modern haste and deterioration. At each corner is an ugly square brick pillar of great height, a sort of caricature of a sacred column, and around the base of the central pagoda, amid numerous little gilded shrines, are little golden trees adorned with colored glass balls like Christmas trees. As an example of Burman taste in the gaudy, it is especially interesting, and even with all the overloaded tawdriness, the mighty pagoda in its fine position is very fascinating. The boy admired it greatly. His feelings were too much for him, and he ventured to say it was better than the Shui de Gan. Afterwards, we passed down another approach between huge leogryphs, one chewing a tiger in its mouth, a bit of realistic sculpture I had not seen before. We went on into the groves around, where were many Pungyi Chungs. These quiet groves, with the piece of a perpetual Sunday lying in them, always pleased me. We came out down a deserted street, where the small huts were partially wrecked, and cooking utensils, bedding, etc., lay in heaps in the road. I asked Chunnaswamy the meaning of this, and was told it was the plague. The people had all been cleared out only two days ago. For myself, it was all right, 
Europeans only in the rarest cases catch plague. And when I inquired if he were not afraid, he cheerfully replied, Only English make fuss about plague, Missy. Native, him never mind. Then there was the night journey, the arrival in Rangoon, the few days there, in which there was so much to do and see, I had no time to feel melancholy. And then the good-byes, the launch down the river, the big steamer, and that night in my bunk, the horrible feeling that I was leaving all the dear delights of a country, which had seemed in many ways so native to me, that I could not believe I had never been there before. The ways, the people, the country itself, I knew it all and loved it, and it was like breaking numberless little strings to wrench away from it. They say that beyond all countries you hear Burma a-calling, and it is named the land of regrets, because people who have been there are never the same afterwards. There lives in their hearts always a tiny ache of regret for the land they have left. End of chapter 15